Hi, and welcome to the College Financial Ladies Ask the Experts series. Um, this is our fourth conversation, and for those of you who are new, I'm Anne Garcia. I'm a financial advisor and also write a blog called The College Financial Lady, where I work with families to figure out how to find affordable, um, good fit college um, solutions. With me today is Kathy Smith-Connor. Um, Kathy is um, the founder of uh, Connor College Consulting, where she works with student athletes, um, among others, to find a good path in college. Kathy was one of the most highly recruited high school swimmers in the nation in 1982 before she accepted a scholarship to Stanford, um, a full athletic scholarship for swimming. During her four years at Stanford, Kathy won 21 NCAA All-American Awards, numerous NCAA and Pac-10 titles. It was the Pac-10 then, um, <laughs> including the 1986 Pac-10 Scholar Athlete of the Year, and she was also on the 1983 NCAA National um, Championship team. She was a member of numerous United States national teams from 1980 to 1987. She was an alternate on the 1980 U.S. Olympic swim team and was inducted into the Washington State Swimming Hall of Fame in 2005. After graduating from Stanford with a BA in psychology and taking advantage of Stanford's overseas program to study at Oxford University in England, uh, Kathy pursued a career in educational travel for many years before obtaining her certification degree for college counseling at UCLA. Her passion is to combine her psychology training, a love of working with teens, her understanding of the athletic recruiting landscape, and her organizational management experience to empower and encourage high school students in the sometimes bewildering and often arduous college admissions and athletic recruiting process. In addition to all that, she has two of her own kids who have played sports in college. And so um, so she has really seen this from every angle, you know, both as an advisor to families, uh, not both, as, but as an advisor to families, as a student athlete herself, and as a parent of student athletes. So welcome, Kathy. I'm so glad to have you here. It's great to be here. So yesterday was a pretty big day for you um, and for yeah. student athletes. You want to talk a little bit about what happens on June 15th? Yeah, well, pretty big day for uh, my athletes more than me, but I'm kind of behind the scenes prompting them and helping them understand uh, what June 15 is all about. And to be um, specific, this is June 15 for kids that just finished their sophomore year. So for the majority of them, not all sports, but the majority of sports, June 15 is the first day that coaches are allowed to personally reach out to student athletes for the purposes of recruiting. There are certain sports that have to wait until September 1, and the NC2A changes these rules a lot, so I'm looking down to just refresh <laughs> on some of these other more random sports. But for um, example, women's basketball, um, coaches still cannot reach out to them, again, women's basketball, until September 1 as junior year is starting. And there are a few other sports um, that are similar, but for the majority of sports, June 15 as sophomore year ends is when coaches can start reaching out to them. Excellent. So that sounds like <laughs> sounds like a, a, a busy day. Um, you know, you mentioned that this is for um, students who are sophomores. Can you um, talk a little bit about, you know, each year in the process where students might want to be in the recruiting landscape? I mean, I feel like this year there's so much talk about, you know, seniors having missed senior season and state championships and all of those opportunities. But it may be that there's a bigger lost opportunity for the sophomores and juniors for whom this was really a prime recruiting year with no showcase tournaments, no ID camps. Yeah. Um, so, so what would be a timeline for a student athlete as they go through high school? Right, so <clears throat> I take a proactive approach as opposed to a reactive approach. Um, both ways, if the student athlete is a good athlete, they may very well end up um, playing their sport in college. But what I mean by the proactive approach is I ask my student athletes to start with me freshman or sophomore because I like to, I work on four fits, an academic fit, a social fit, a financial fit, and then an athletic fit. So for example, there is no point in a student reaching out to Harvard or MIT or Princeton if they have, I'm just gonna make like really obvious examples, if they have like a 2.5 GPA, right? Because even if they're playing at an Olympic level, the coach just can't get them admitted. Um, there's also no point in reaching out to a school, let's say if they wanna um, study civil engineering, 
and maybe they're talking to a coach and, and the coach says, well, what are you interested in? He says, well, I'm really interested in studying civil engineering. And the coach says, uh, school doesn't offer a program in civil engineering. That would be a little bit embarrassing for the student athlete, but also there would be no point because if they want to graduate with that kind of degree, why would they even be talking to that school? For the um, so we start to figure a lot of those pieces out, that academic fit, also the social fit. Are they more comfortable at a big school or a small, a private school or a public school, a rural setting or an urban setting? Um, the culture of the school, do they, do they go to maybe Jesuit High School here in Portland, Oregon, and they would really love to attend a Jesuit Catholic University? Um, sometimes the geography of a school makes a difference in the culture. So you want to go to school in Texas, that's almost like a foreign country. <laughs> no <laughs> offense to Texans, I love it there. But um, so all those pieces. And then we also have to, um, you know, what's really relevant to you is also look at the financial piece because not every offers athletic scholarships or that particular sport isn't fully, and so they're not likely to get an athletic scholarship or the college doesn't offer merit scholarship monies. There's that piece to look at too, and a college in the end is likely not going to be affordable. Again, why spend time cultivating a relationship with that coach? I had a swimmer who came in a couple of years ago and she said, my dream's always been to go to Harvard. And I said, great, I hope you have $75,000 a year. Um, she was a swimmer and she said, what? And I said, well, Harvard, none of the Ivy Leagues give any athletic scholarship money none of them give any merit scholarship money and i know your income and assets and where your family is you know you're sitting in a position where you're not likely to get any of knee-based aid which is the only kind of financial aid that the ivy leagues give so that is an important piece as well so back to your question freshman or sophomore year where we're trying to develop a profile of the kinds of schools that they are likely to be most interested in and then and only after we've started to do that work do we start to reach out to coaches. Now, I mentioned that coaches cannot reach back out to athletes until after June 15 of sophomore year, which was yesterday. But I have them start um, a list of colleges that they are likely to be most interested in. And then we can also reach out to those coaches prior to June 15 and ask them to come and watch them play at showcases and tournaments, etc which is what I call kind of feeding their pipeline. Mm -hmm. So when June 15 comes along, then um, that pipeline has been fed a little bit and they will start getting responses from coaches. And I'm in fact quite eager, probably by tomorrow to reach out to my just finished sophomores to see how that pipeline feeding went and if they did have some coaches reach out to them. Excellent. So um, one of the areas I'd like to, you mentioned athletic scholarships, and I would love for us to spend a little bit of time on that. You know, as a financial advisor, one of my least favorite conversations to have with, with clients when they come in and we're working on their financial plan and I ask them about college and they say, oh, well, my daughter's a D1 soccer prospect, so mm -hmm. we're, we got college covered. Can you talk through a little bit about the reality of athletic scholarships, you know, headcount sports versus equivalency sports and, and, and help set some realistic expectations yeah. where the dollars come from? Absolutely. That's actually one of my least favorite questions that I get or issues that I'm dealing with. Um, and it's not a parent's fault. They think their kids are amazing. And I think my kids are amazing as well. It's just more of a lack of understanding of what the athletic recruiting world is like. Um, college sports are a business. Coaches are hired to win. And they have budgets that they have to adhere to as well as um, rules of recruiting, such as that June 15 deadline. So. There are two types of um, scholarships that sports kind of adhere to. And actually, I should take a step back and say, in case some of um, our listeners don't know this, the NC2A or the NCAA is the National Collegiate Governing Body for Sports. There is a second National Collegiate Governing Body called the NAIA, which is usually smaller regional-based schools, and oftentimes the, the majority of them are probably faith-based. And there's definitely a place for that. And there's a lot of great schools that fall under that. But most people, when they're thinking of playing sports in college, are thinking of the NC2A. 
And then under the NC2A, that's divided into three divisions. We call it D, D for division, D1, D2, D3. And um, what we're talking about with your question specifically is for D1 sports or division one. And there's two categories, headcount and equivalency sports. And the headcount sports are football, uh, men's basketball, women's basketball, gymnastics, tennis, and women's volleyball. And I have to just make sure I said that right. I did. So those are the five, those are the five sports that are headcount. So what headcount means is it's from the head down, meaning you get a full scholarship or you get nothing at all. And a full scholarship means tuition, room and board, books, transportation, and living expenses, all those five categories. So full scholarship. It doesn't matter if you're in state or out of state at a public school or a private school. It's a full scholarship or nothing. Then the rest of the sports, which is the majority of the sports, are called equivalency sports, which means the coach gets a certain number of um, scholarships for the entire program. So uh, women's swimming, for example, coaches get 14 full scholarships and that is for everyone there. Doesn't It's not broken up per class. So it, let's say there are three seniors that are on full athletic scholarships. Well, as those seniors are about to graduate, the coach knows that three full scholarships are getting released from those 14 and are coming back around and will be available for the next incoming freshman class. So if you're super valuable to um, that coach and you can score in their conference for, for swimming anyway, that is kind of one of the gold standards as far as how valuable you're gonna be. So if you can score in their conference and also how many relays might you, you be able to contribute to, um, then you're gonna be more valuable. If you um, can't score in the conference, if you're not gonna be able to participate in relays. So if there's any swimmers out there that know maybe you're a 400 IMer, you're not likely to be on any relays because those are going to be sprints. Um, then you're not going to be quite as valuable as say as a 50 or 100 freestyler. So again, the more valuable you are, the more they might be willing to give you a full athletic scholarship. If you're not going to be quite as valuable, but maybe they see a lot of potential in you, then maybe they'll give you a 20% scholarship or a 40% scholarship or a 65% scholarship. It kind of all depends on, again, how the valuable the coach sees you. And then to call- And that's purely at the coach's discretion. At the co coach's discretion. And it's in the eye of the beholder too. Yeah. So it, it might not feel very fair. So swimming in track and field feels a little fairer because it's a measurable thing, right? You have a time, a distance that you throw um, and you can measure it. But soccer, since you kind of started out asking about soccer, that's in the eye of the beholder. So for one year that coach might be only recruiting defense uh, because they have enough forwards and midfielders, or they might only be needing, you know, a goalie or whatever. And so, and then they'll want to see you play live and they might say, you're too big, you're too small, you're too fast, you're too slow, you're too technical, you're not technical enough. It's all about uh, what's in the eye of the beholder. So back to your original question, uh, when I have families coming in and saying, well, my daughter is a varsity starter on her high school team, what I'm thinking inside is that doesn't really mean anything, right? It, what it means is maybe there's potential for you to play in college, but we don't know at what division, D1, D2, D3. We don't know how valuable you're going to be if you're going to be a walk-on. So you, you get a walk-on means you get a roster spot and you can practice with the team, you can play with the team. You may or may not travel with the team, depends on how many they, the college and the coach um, wants kids to travel, but you probably wouldn't get any athletic scholarship money versus um, a kid who is playing at a much higher level, not just varsity starter on their team, but they're playing at a, on a club team also. Again, I'm talking soccer and um, they're on ECNL and the ECNL team is, you know, winning and going to a lot of tournaments where there are a lot of college coaches in attendance watching them, then that uh, player might get more money, et cetera. So I hope I answered that. I can also tell you, um, you suggested maybe I talk about my own kids. So <laughs> I have um, one kid who played soccer in college and she graduated last year. Um, 
her coaches, her high school and club coaches said, you could play at a D1 level. But really the question is, can you play at a D1 school that a coach is interested in you, but that you also want to go to school there? And I always, so sorry for any listeners who went to Oklahoma Baptist University, but I always pick on Oklahoma Baptist University. Um, so maybe the coach is excited about you, but you don't want to go to school in Oklahoma, you know? So, so there's that issue, but back to my daughter, um, she decided to look at only D3 schools for a very specific reason. One, she heard about what my experience was like as a full on D1 athlete with a full scholarship, which means it's my job. They own you. Um, unless you are, have a um, fever and are throwing up, you will be at practice. You will not miss. Um, and it's a very hard four years. And it's something that I loved. I chose it, but it's not for everybody. And my daughter felt like that wasn't for her. She's very level-headed, had a lot of interest. She's an artist. And so she chose a D3 school that had the programs of study that she was interested in, but also because D3 has a philosophy, which I love, which is kind of a work-life balance, if you will. There is a defined on-season, then there is a defined off-season where the NC2A really dictates how much you can practice with the team, how much the coach can even be in attendance at those practices. Sometimes they're um, captain-led practices uh, for the result of really wanting student athletes to have a time at college just to be purely a student as well. And she really wanted that experience. So back to the uh, financial piece, um, she was on an ECNL team and all of her teammates and their parents were running around saying, we gotta get on a, you know, a D1 athletic program and get recruited. Um, but the average women's D1 soccer scholarship is around $14,000. That is it. And if you wanna go to, let's say, Northwestern, um, where they give very little to no merit, and it costs $75,000 a year, same with Stanford, no merit at all, then um, $14,000 a year against that $75,000 a year doesn't go very far. Um, for some people, that's a fantastic choice anyway, and their parents have saved, et cetera. But um, my daughter chose George Fox University, which was a fantastic school for her, perfect fit academically and socially, and they give a lot of merit aid. So she got $20,000 a year in merit as opposed to the $14,000 a year average D1 women's soccer scholarship. So financially, she really came out ahead in the end, again, financially, but also it was the right fit for her. So that's kind of what I'm all about is finding that right fit. And that financial piece is just one of those. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because my son had the opposite experience where he played, you know, he played high school and club soccer, you know, all, all through high school. And one year, the club team that he played on was the coach was very focused on getting the kids to play in college. And so every game they went to that was outside of Portland, you know, whether it was in Eugene or Medford or Las Vegas or you know, any of the showcases they went to, they would go and tour the local college and meet with the coach and meet yeah. with some players and whatnot. And what was really great for him is he realized that the kinds of schools that he could play soccer at were not the kinds of schools that he wanted to attend. So yeah. it was it was great for him to have that learning and to be able to really focus his college search on something other than than sports. Um, yeah, and he's playing a ton of intramurals now. Well, he was um, up until a few months ago. <laughs> yeah, and hopes to be playing again. But um, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, you know, maybe bubble soccer going forward, but uh, but but it was really a, a good learning for him to see kind of where he would fit in the overall scheme of things mm -hmm. and, and what the trade-offs would be for continuing his um, his sport at the at the college level. So, um, you know, speaking of that, a lot of people and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned your daughter playing um, D3. You have another daughter who's a D1 swimmer. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of different ways and levels to pursue sports in college. Yeah. You know, we always think of D1 as, as it, but there are a lot of options for, um, for student athletes. Can you talk about some of the different, um, you know, the different choices that, um, yeah. that have to pursue their sport? Right. So I was mentioning D1 because that's what most 
parents and kids are thinking of before they kind of get educated about all the options that they might have. So there's D2 and D3 as well. And I did mention D3 and specific, um, specifically with regards to they don't give any athletic scholarship money, but they are usually the high academic schools. There are a handful, of course, D1s that are high academic. I mean, just thinking on the West Coast, USC, Stanford, um, et cetera. But um, most of the D3s are pretty strong academics and they focus on um, that for a reason. And therefore, they're also the ones that oftentimes give a lot of merit aid. So, and then the D2s are kind of in the middle. They do give athletic scholarships, um, but they're usually smaller, more regional. And it's it's not very often that I have a kid that goes to D2. It's usually either D1 or D3. Mm-hmm. But if a kid um, amongst those D1, D2, D3s isn't finding an opportunity to do their sport um, officially, which is the varsity um, sports there, then there are also club sports at most colleges, which are usually quite competitive and a, a fantastic option. And a lot of my kids find that, okay, Oklahoma Baptist University, they're interested in me, but I really don't wanna go there. So I'm gonna go to one of the schools that I am really interested in. Um, I have a, a varsity starter soccer guy um, playing at a very high level and just couldn't find a place um, over the past couple of years where he was excited to go. So he chose to go to University of Arizona, which was one of his top choices. And I know you and I have that. Yeah. Um, And they have a very competitive men's club soccer team. And he was super excited about that. So club um, is usually kids who either couldn't quite play their sport in college or not at the colleges that they really wanted to go to. So they're still very good, quite competitive. Um, they get, you know, gear, they travel and play against other club teams, and it can be a really fantastic um, way to continue to play your sport. The two downsides to club sport, which I thought I should probably mention, is one, obviously no scholarship money, so you're doing it, you know, voluntarily. And then also, um, one of the huge advantages of being a, um, especially a D1 athlete, although it can happen at D2 and D3 levels too, is the coaches can um, help support your application through admissions. And at the club level, coaches have no say in admissions. And so you get in on your own. And if you're lucky enough to get in, then you can play your sport at that club level. So perhaps another follow-up question you'd like me to talk about (laughs) is helping, how does that work with getting kids through admissions? That was going to be my next question. Yeah. So thank you for that segue. <laughs> yeah, because I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking, well, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's quite stringent after the Varsity Blues scandal. And um, I'm sure listeners are aware of what I mean by that, where quite a few uh, D1 coaches were caught kind of cheating the system. And um, probably the most prominent one was... Um, Maybe I don't. I shouldn't mention her name, but at USC, um, parents were photoshopping their kids' faces as coxes and on erg um, machines to get them into USC as rowers, even though they had never rowed a day in their life. So that was pretty egregious. And um, even my beloved Stanford had, a, I think it was a sailing coach, was um, asked to step down for violation of some of that as well. So the Varsity Blues scandal has. Um, um, hopefully really clean things up. And as I'm continuing to talk to college coaches, it's quite a stringent process for them. But regardless, unless your parents have a spare um, $5 million, let's say to name a library (laughs) after themselves, uh, varsity athletes are really in a very fortunate category because um, big sports culture is a big, part of a lot of colleges and college coaches really are hired to win. And um, so they're wanting, you know, the top athletes. So they are allowed oftentimes to help support athletes through the admissions process. Um, These athletes have to be, they have to meet and kind of be on the academic playing field. Um, So they're gonna to have to have certain GPA test scores, um, especially for the more selective schools before they can be considered. Um, but after they're deemed on the academic playing field and they're deemed that by going through a pre-read process where the coach kind of 
um, walks their credentials down to admissions and says, look, I'm really interested in this kid and recruiting him. Based on what you see here, uh, are they gonna be admissible? And um, the admissions office will say yes, no, and maybe. The no is, sorry, there's no way that they can get their GPA up to what we need or whatever. The maybe is what I got at Stanford. So I was on the Olympic team and Stanford came back to me and said, okay, your GPA and courses look great, but we need your SAT score to go from here to here. And if you get it up to here, then we, we can admit you. And I had to prep the heck out of it. stressful test day. <laughs> it was pretty stressful. I had to prep the heck out of it. And this was back in the 80s before, you know, there's all these fancy test mm -hmm. companies. And I, you second time. the book. And <laughs> yeah, I got the book. And second time, didn't quite get it. Third time, managed to get it. And then I was admitted. Um, but so basically, then the yes is, okay, everything we see here, GPA, coursework, test scores are in range, and we'd love to consider the student athlete. So then the coach comes back to the student athlete and says, you've passed the pre-read, uh, would you like to verbally commit? And um, if, you, if a student athlete verbally commits, then I really like to have my athletes not renege you, you, it's like getting engaged, really. So you get engaged, you stop dating when you get engaged, right? So the athlete stops the recruiting mm -hmm. process and they are sure they want to marry, you know, that school. And if they're not sure, then you tell the coach, I'm not quite ready to commit. I'm going to be um, still working the recruiting process. And of course, then they, they run the risk of maybe losing out on that roster spot, but it's still, it's not good to get engaged until you're ready to get married, right? So at what point do, do students typically verbally commit or is yeah. it vary by sport and by school? I'm um, it can vary a little bit, but I think for this conversation's purposes, really, it's uh, spring of junior year. It's often mm -hmm. when my athletes verbally commit because okay. we have done the hard work and we know that this is a good fit. Now, if you're just starting in junior year, you might not have done that work yet, might not have been able to look at all your options. You've not visited those schools yet on official or unofficial visits. And so it might take longer. Yeah. So once they verbally commit though, and they've passed a pre-read, I have this double negative here, but I've never not had a student not get admitted if they've passed the pre-read and they verbally committed because we know that they're admissible and the coach is kind of shepherding their application through. And at a D3, which is um, some of the very, very top schools in the world are D3s, you know, think about MIT, Johns Hopkins, Emory University, Claremont, McKenna, Pomona, etc. Um, those are pretty darn hard schools to get into. And that can be a real advantage, even at a D3 level, if you're an athlete, because the coach can still support your application through admissions. I know when we toured MIT, they said 25% of their students are varsity athletes. Huh. Which that's a lot. That's <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, so um now you've seen the life of a student athlete from multiple perspectives. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you know, what should students expect? What are things that they can do to prepare themselves for the athletic lifestyle in 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 college? Um, you know, are there personality traits that you look for in a student to determine if they'd be successful at different different levels? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I'll start with my experience. So my mom remembers me many a time, and <laughs> I don't rem remember it being many a time, but she does. Um, calling home just in tears over, I just have more on my plate than I can handle. I'm exhausted all the time and um, I have no social life and this is just really hard. So again, I'm not saying I would have done it differently. I, I, it was more me just kind of venting to my mom, but um, a D1 athlete, especially at a really rigorous academic school like Stanford, you know, it was, it was really hard. And um, it's a job and you are on 24 seven. You never quite get enough rest. Um, there's always more to do than you can manage. And I'm purposely making it sound hard because it's realistic. Yeah. And I, this is one of the things I talk about with my student athletes, just like my daughter, even if you can play at a D1 level, 
is this really the right thing for you? And she chose, no, it wasn't. So now I'll talk about my D1 swimmer daughter. She's at University of Arizona. She regularly calls home in tears with me um, that there is way more on her plate than she can actually handle. And she's exhausted all the time. And it's funny, we were talking about this. She's been home since March, sadly, um, three days before they were set to fly out for the NC2A National Swim Championships. The, the swim championships were canceled for all sports. Um, and it was very, very hard. Uh, so classes were online, swimming was shut down. So she came home in March and um, she hasn't been sick at all. But prior to that, she was getting colds and various things a lot. It's just because she was just not getting enough sleep. She was stressed all the time and it's hard. And you might say, well, what are the academics like at University of Arizona versus Stanford? Maybe she doesn't have to study quite as much, but that's actually a um, kind of a false belief. Um, and I run into that a lot. And you have a kid at University of Arizona, you know that the academics there are quite rigorous, um, mm -hmm. largely depending on what major you're in. And so if you look at the overall, maybe admission rate at a big public university, and it may be quite high, in other words, a lot of kids get in, but that's not quite, that's a little bit misleading because it really largely depends on the major you're in and how rigorous it is. And she's in pre-health uh, with the intent of going on to get her master's in nursing and stay a fifth year there. And so she's she's studying very hard. She just finished organic chemistry and almost killed her and trying to train at the right. same time. <laughs> well, so. and for student athletes, there's really no margin for error on the academics. Yeah, there's not. You have to maintain a certain uh, GPA in order to continue to compete, et cetera. So it's quite difficult. So I hope I, did I answer that question? And Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, I mean, did you, and I, it sounds like you found it was far, far more balanced for your, for your daughter who, um, who was D3. Yeah, Fox. not because George Fox wasn't as rigorous. She, she found it quite rigorous. It's because uh, there was a very defined the sports were less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the sports process was less. Right. Yeah. And I think that's really an important um, an important consideration for um, for a lot of students, especially, you know, given that for for most students, um, you know, the, the scholarship dollars aren't coming from their sport. It's coming from, it's coming from their athletics. And so, uh, sorry, it's coming from their academics. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so have you been finding with a lot of, you know, with many of your students, it seems like um, a number of colleges have reduced their, um, their sports programs um, following COVID. I know one of my son's friends who was playing college soccer, their program, um, their program was canceled. Are you, um, are you finding that's pretty, uh, that's, that's pretty prevalent or is it more, more of an outlier situation so, or is it colleges taking advantage of the current environment to manage Title IX issues? <laughs> well, when you say canceled, you mean it was completely dropped? It's mm -hmm. not going to happen? Yeah, it sounds like, and yeah. it sounds like men's soccer is, is a pretty consistent one that's being dropped. So I'm not finding that as much. I am hearing programs here and there that are getting dropped. And I don't think it's a Title IX issue as much as it's a budget issue. Mm -hmm. And so men's programs are largely probably going to be um, looked at first as opposed to women's as a Title IX issue. But it's really just a budgetary issue. So I will tell you, I'm constantly on my blogs and professional organizations and talking to coaches. And if football and basketball can't happen this year, it is going to kill a lot of athletic departments because those are the revenue sports. And soccer is not a revenue sport. Swimming is not a revenue sport. You know, I can tell you, I go to meets and there's, you know, 30 people in the stands. <laughs> and it's all moms. <laughs> So, $10 a ticket. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, they're free. Usually they're free. So um, that may start happening more and more if the COVID situation doesn't die down. And like I said, football and basketball can't happen. But right now, I'm not seeing that many sports. That must have been just kind of an outlier. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you, and you wonder how, you know, is it really that COVID is causing this versus this is something that has been under debate for some time and, and we're using this as the as the, the yeah. rationale. 
Maybe. I, I would venture to say it's probably more COVID related. Yeah. So, um, you know, when when we, the generation of parents right now, were um, coming up through the process of, you know, high school to college and whatnot, it, it seems like a great deal of the recruiting happened at the high school level. Yeah. And I'm thinking that's no longer so much the case with so many kids playing club sports and, and whatnot. Can you talk about who some of the key players in the recruiting process are that the students yeah. should be interacting with? Yeah, so there are certain sports that are still kind of um, high school focused. So there's not that many clubs, sports, or any at all for, say, track and field, uh, football. Um, those are probably the two that I'm thinking of. There may be others, but those are two that really are more, you do your high school sport and that's where a lot of the recruiting happens. Oh, and then for football, you'll go to like combines to play in front of college coaches. Um, but track and field, you know, you're, it's kind of high school all year round. You're doing cross country, then you're in a bit of a break and you're running on your own, then you do track and field in the spring. Um, so there, the club coaches can play a little bit more of a role in helping with the recruiting process. But for the majority of sports, it is really through the club scene. So like for swimming, um, high school swimming is like nothing. You know, the the swimmer doesn't even go to the practices usually. You just you show up at the meets and those are super fun and it's so fun to be part of that whole scene. But you don't train with them and um, co college coaches, you know, they're aware of your times, but they're at the club, you know, events. And then for soccer, for example, we keep talking about those two sports more. Um, no, no college coach is really going to come to a high school game unless they're local. They're going to all go to the ECNL showcases and tournaments and the academy showcases and tournaments, et cetera. So um, hopefully that answers that question. And it's all about club. Yeah. So really your club coach or your club's recruiting platform is going to be. Yeah. What do you suggest, you know, for, um, in the current year where we were, you know, most of the, all the spring showcases and most of the summer ID camps are not taking place. What suggestions yeah. do you have for athletes who, you know, and maybe rising juniors, rising seniors for whom this was really going to be a big, a big focus of their summer. How, yeah. how should they be, you know, interacting with coaches or getting, getting the word out about them themselves? Yeah, it's such a bummer. And especially for the subjective sports, it's really, we're getting, ha having to get super creative. So mm -hmm. by the, what I mean by that is the objective sports, swimming, track and field, they can still, they're going on their times. Now, granted, swimming again. It's funny we keep saying that because my son is a soccer player. You know, there were times when he was exactly who the coach wanted and times when he wasn't. And I used to tell him, you know, if that's a problem for you, you should be a pole vaulter. <laughs> you you know you're either the best pole vaulter or you're not the best pole vaulter. It's super easy, right? I know. So for those sports, they haven't been hurt as much, even though for swimming, for example, they missed out on their championship meet in March, which is what. So for swimming, you swim tired all year, and you wait all year for this taper meet, this championship meet in March, senior sectionals or whatever it is, to show what you got. And um, swimming was canceled before that. So they're going on year old times, et cetera, but at least they have times. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so we're working off of that. But for my subjective sports like soccer, um, lacrosse, so many others um, where you have to get seen and get exposure to college coaches, they're just really at a serious disadvantage. So we're having to get really creative and um, some some clubs are starting to be able to practice again and they're holding scrimmages and the parents are taping the scrimmages or they're doing training on their own. Whereas my goalkeepers are having a coach shoot balls at them and they're showing, you know, how they, how they work. Um, just, just as creative as we can and, and then sending video and I'm having my athletes get on the phone and talk to coaches. And basically I tell my kids that there are three things coaches are looking for in the recruiting process, largely. 
Number one, are you admissible? So again, the coaches need to know, okay, I can get you admitted. That's the first thing. Number two, the more you can explain why this particular school is on your list, why you're interested in them, a coach will be able to say, okay, so he's really doing his research. There's a really solid reason why this school is a good fit for this student. And so I'm gonna kind of put him on my shorter list. And it might be things like, I wanna stay on the West Coast. I wanna go to a Jesuit Catholic school because I go to a Jesuit Catholic high school and I wanna study business. And the coach would be like, wow, you really have put your, some thought into this. And then the third and final thing coaches are interested in is, are you playing at a level that I'd like to have on my roster? And again, for the subjective sports, that's harder, which is why we're, I'm having my athletes set up phone calls with coaches now and explain the first two based on the data that we see. I believe I'm admissible. Here's my reasons why I'm really interested in you. And can I send you video so you can see kind of the level that I'm playing at? And then can I stay in touch with you? So when there are opportunities that start to open up again, perhaps you can come and see me play. And that's kind of what we're having to do right now. What, um, so here in Oregon for us, everything's still shut down. Sports teams aren't training and all that. That's not necessarily the case everywhere else. Do you feel like it's going to be a big disadvantage for kids coming from states with more rigorous lockdowns than for those who, who haven't? I mean, what, yeah. and, 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 and what can students do to overcome that beyond, you know, making sure that coaches are aware. Yeah, um, we're all having to make this up as we go. So me yeah. advising my students, parents, and also coaches that are recruiting, they're kind of having, no one's been here before in this situation. It's totally unprecedented. <laughs> and so again, we're just having to get creative. And I think, yeah, some states that are opening up again, may be at an advantage to us here in Oregon that are still kind of shut down. But again, explaining why the school's a good fit and that they're admissible and sending video is pretty much what you got right now. And getting those phone conversations with coaches, because another thing coaches want to do is, do, do they like the kid? You know, are they going to be a positive contributing member to their team? And having phone conversations can help with that too. And then this isn't really as much recruiting, but um, some families might start to really think outside the box. So I know swimmers that are already at their college but are in states that are shut down are moving to states where pools are opening mm -hmm. and are gonna start training again. And I won't say where, but my mm -hmm. University of Arizona swimmer daughter is mm -hmm. waiting for the go ahead to move to a different state to train because pools here are shut down in this other state, the pools are open. So with regards to recruiting, I don't, no one knows how long this is going to go on, but if it keeps going on, maybe some families are going to start thinking outside the box in that manner as well. No idea. New, new set of destinations for showcase events. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I, so, um, you know, the, the people we really haven't talked about in this whole process are the ones who are listening to us, the parents. Mm -hmm. Um, what what guidance do you have for parents about really being helpful in this process and 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 you know you talked earlier about your four fits so not just am i playing my sport at the highest level but but really am i going to be successful over a four-year college career with sports being part of it so what guidance can you give to parents to be helpful in in, in the process in those whole you know in the in the four the four fits not just the Right. Pushing the kid to the top of the sports ladder. Yeah. Well, like I said, really looking at what is a good fit um, based on what are the kids' goals? You know, are they, um, do they have an idea of what they want their, what, what do they want to be when they grow up? And what, what major that, that are they really attracted to? Now, the most common major I'm sure you know going into college is undecided. So rightfully so, what 16, 17, you know, 18 year old really knows what they want to be when they grow up, but some do, they have an inkling of what they want to study. So really getting a handle on that and focusing on good fit schools academically and also where they're going to thrive academically. So I have probably the second most question that I don't like when parents come in is 
well, I want my kid to get into the best college possible. And the reason why I don't like that is, first of all, how do you define that? What's the best school possible? I do not. Parkley, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot. That's right. <laughs> But I don't subscribe to the U.S. News and World Report rankings. I don't think those are an accurate um, definer of what is a good fit school. I actually subscribe to, for any parents, if you want to Google this, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called David and Goliath. And then he did a talk, I think it was at Google. It's only a 19-minute talk um, with Zeitgeist Talks. That's the name of it. So Google Malcolm Gladwell Zeitgeist. And it's straight out of his chapter 10 of David and Goliath that he did a study on Harvard students. And basically his um, uh, conclusion coming out of that is kids are gonna thrive at colleges where they're likely to graduate towards the top of their class. So instead of getting into just barely squeezing into a top school where they are gonna be, if they barely squeezed in, they're gonna be towards the bottom of the class, go to a school based on data where they're gonna be towards the top of their class. So Google Malcolm Gladwell Zeitgeist um, and then also in the environment where they're going to be happiest, you know, you want to, you could study biology or psychology anywhere, but if you don't walk around the campus as a student and say, these are my peeps, you know, this is where I'm really happy, then you're not going to, um, maybe want to stay. And you and I have talked before about transferring is super disruptive. I've never had a student transfer except for one. And that was kind of more of a safety issue. Um, so I don't want my students to transfer. I want them to walk around the campus and say, I'm really happy here. These are my kind of peeps. Um, so then the other, the athletic piece is also not um, assuming that your kid can play just because they're a varsity starter on their team, play at a super high level. You have to be really realistic about what level your kid is playing at. And it's harder with a subjective sport, of course, um, but start asking club coaches and high school coaches to be honest honest about what level do you think I can play at um, and then starting from there and then also starting early in the process is way better than waiting because I started out talking about proactive versus reactive if you are proactive and are actively reaching out to coaches of colleges that you think are good fits for you and can articulate that you're going to have a much better outcome usually than um, kids that are just waiting for coaches to call them. That's the kind of reactive approach. Then you're kind of taking the leftovers or just whatever college reaches out to you, whether it's a good fit or not. Um, and then also understanding that there are many, many sport opportunities outside of the D1 process um, and include, as I mentioned with my own daughter, D3 was just the right fit for her. So there's a lot to kind of um, consider when you're going through this and kind of pulling it all together. Uh, but that's, in my opinion, how you can really do it well. Yeah. So, um, so kind of one, well, two, two final questions. We'll start with one. Um, I knew that um, when, so, so I, I have twins um, and my son applied to two schools and that was great. It was really easy. My daughter applied to eight schools. Mm -hmm. And so applying to college was like an additional job for her. And she was a, you know, IB student in theater and then doing all these college applications. Yeah. Um, I would and, and it was a massive project. She had almost 30 essays that she had to write and whatnot. Yeah. So what does the application process look like for a student athlete? I mean, I can see someone who verbally commits you're taking a lot of that stress away, but are they still going through the full application process? Do you have them apply to multiple schools as Great well? Question. I mean, just given that 16 year olds often have different opinions than, than their 17 year old self, for example. Yeah. yeah, actually that's a great question. You ask really good questions. Um, so my athletes who generally they verbally commit to a school at the end of junior year, they only apply to one school, that school that they verbally committed to because they've passed the pre-read, so they know they're going to be admitted for the most part. There's there's a very small handful of schools where they don't, and I, I can address that too. But most of them, they know where they're gonna be admitted, they know um, they have a roster spot, and so why would you apply anywhere else, right? And I can tell you as a mom, my two kids only applied to one school, 
And um, so I'm not telling my families anything that I haven't done myself. Now, there, there are a handful of schools where it is not a done deal. Those are the Ivy Leagues and Stanford in particular. And there may be a few others where they will give you a likely letter. In other words, you are on the academic playing field, you've passed the pre-read, we've run it through, and we think you're gonna be admitted, but we as coaches cannot give you a guarantee. So we are um, fairly confident that it could go the other way. So in those cases, um, those student athletes may want to consider a plan B, but for the majority, plan A is one school and it's, it's done. So I, I come from a family of athletes. I would not number myself among them, but um, several of them, you know, I have a cousin who was a highly recruited football player and was going to play at Alabama. Mm -hmm. And senior year, he decided he didn't really like football. Uh, right. <laughs> so that um, so that changed things um, changed things quite a quite a bit. And I've, so I've seen this in my own family where yeah, it's what they know. Right. until they get to about 17 years old and then they realize there's a lot of things a lot of other things that they um, that they might like to know yeah well so i guess one last thing i would ask you the, the broadest question of them all what would you like parents and students to know that we haven't covered already or if you could sum up a single takeaway you'd like people to have from our conversation today yeah um well, I don't know if I have a single takeaway, but I guess D1 sports are hard. Don't think it's the end all and be all. Have a plan B for uh, the financial piece of it. Don't assume that your kid is going to get college paid for just because they're a varsity starter on their team. Um, and have a realistic view going into this process. Don't assume your kid is going to make a roster. Don't assume that just because your kid has a 4.0 they're gonna get into Stanford or Harvard. Um, just be really realistic. And if they're listening, that's a big piece of being realistic is learning to, or being willing to learn from people who've kind of gone before them and are the supposed experts and kind of help round out their understanding of the process. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. This has been really, really great. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and uh, for those of you who missed the very intro, Kathy is with Connor College Consulting out of Portland, Oregon, and um, works with non-athletes as well. Um, right. But has this really, um, this really great perspective on the um, on the experience of student athletes um, and their families. And I'm so grateful for you to you for sharing that with um, with all of us today. You're really welcome. And I look forward to seeing you down at University of Arizona. Hopefully we'll overlap. Hopefully we'll Go be fast. there sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.